Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, here we go with another podcast. And this week, Rob, we start with the legal battle between British Columbia and Alberta over the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And BC wins around in court, but it ain't over yet, right? Oh, man, it's hard keeping track of all the different lawsuits uh, that are underway on this Trans Mountain Pipeline. But this was one... So uh, we've talked about it in the past podcast, but there's like yeah. two dueling ideas between British Columbia and Alberta on whether they can pass their own laws to essentially either turn off the taps on oil right. or basically block the drain, uh, in British Columbia's case, <laughs> from the oil coming over here. <laughs> and so both are before the courts. And this was Alberta's turn off the taps legislation where it was going to come up with this weirdo licensing regime where the minister in Alberta of energy could decide if and when a company can export by rail or pipeline oil. And British Columbia said, well, that clearly that's designed to discriminate against us sure. based on the fact that all the rhetoric from Alberta talking about, you know, playing tough with BC for opposing the pipeline. And they took Alberta to federal court on this issue. And the court said, in fact, yes, um, they put an injunction on Alberta from being able to uh, actually use this law. So they can't turn off the taps. They cannot turn off the taps. Right. And, and this is going to go to a larger constitutional court case. But basically... Right. What interests me about this, A, it's a really big win for British Columbia yeah. because they had long argued that they were being picked on from Alberta and it's not constitutional to take a pipeline, which is federal responsibility, and try to regulate part of it provincially, you know, just to... Just to punish us for a political decision. Just to piss off your neighbors, yeah. 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 Um, but it's also interesting to me because British Columbia has its own proposed legislation right. that it took to the, the BC Court uh, of Appeal and was ruled unanimously to be unconstitutional. But BC's idea was, just like Alberta, why don't we give our energy minister the power to issue licenses uh, for people who are bringing oil into BC via pipeline or road or truck or whatever. And if we don't like it, then we don't have to issue you a license. Right, and, and that was, was on environmental grounds. Like, yeah. uh, they were based, I remember George Heyman saying that we have provincial jurisdiction over the environment, so therefore, we should be able to say, we don't want your, your dirty bitumen going through that pipe, conceivably, where it might spill into the ocean. So we should be able to tell you right. what you can or can't put in that pipe. So they're fighting over what goes into the pipe from different directions, I guess. And yeah. You know, and so that one is has been kicked up to the Supreme Court of Canada now, right? Yeah, and what's interesting in the uh, in the Alberta ruling is that the judges 
clearly can see through the lie here. And they <laughs> said, Alberta tried to make this weird argument like, well, no, no, we, we haven't used this law and it's not really designed to pick on BC. You know, we're just regulating our resources. And the judge said, look, like, Come on. look at all the public debate. He quoted yeah. an op-ed that Jason Kenney wrote in the Vancouver Sun. He said, clearly, you're trying to punish British Columbia. Yeah. Like, I can, you can see through it. And I think the ramification of that is going to echo back to BC when it tries to argue that we're, we're just, we're just trying to regulate the environment yeah, over right. here. We're just, we're <laughs> just doing our, what's this isn't about Alberta or oil pipelines. And I, uh, that's what I took away from the ruling is that BC won this court battle, but the echo is going to be that it is going to lose its own court when battle. When they on, lose, because BC is going to lose too. And, and, <laughs> and in the end of the day, provinces can't artfully try to regulate a, a, a pipeline which is federal across well, the provincial right. borders. Right. When you have a pipeline that goes across a, pro, a province, provincial border, it's federal jurisdiction. I yeah. mean, that's been kind of long established case law in Canada and constitutional precedent. So, you know, when this whole fight started, to me, I just thought this is all just political posturing, this whole thing. And this ruling that came out this week where this judge said, no, 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 you can't you can't make the bastards freeze in the dark by cutting their boiling gas off. No, that's not allowed in, in Canada. That should surprise, I think, absolutely nobody, because I think it was just a no brainer that that wouldn't be allowed. Same for British Columbia. You're not going to be able to tell um, Alberta uh, what they can or can't put in this pipeline. So I think BC is going to lose there, too. Quite obviously, they're going to lose. And. It's the poor old taxpayer that are going to end up paying for all these legal bills. The only people who win on this thing are the lawyers, I think, who are just making money off of these court cases that are driven just by purely, it's just political posturing. Oh, yeah. And there's two other court cases that are still in the hopper. One of them is a First Nations challenge that's, uh, I think, at the Federal Court of Appeal. And the other, yeah. which we got a ruling That's a on, more serious one. That's a big one, yeah. yeah. And, the, and that's about consultation and the rights of indigenous communities right. to have a say in this pipeline and the government to accommodate them, which it, the federal government is inclined to do. And then the other one is, uh, when we, this kind of happened recently as well, is a, a court that's told British Columbia it has to go back and redo its environmental right. approval certificate because some of the decisions from Ottawa and the National Energy Board had changed. That that one's kind of complicated because, it, again, it touches on the issue that BC can't stop the pipeline. Right. It has to issue an environmental certificate, right. but it can't. It can't not do it. It can't just decide to and not BC do it. And BC has said very clearly they're not going to play those kind of games. No. That if they're because if, they'd get sued into the Stone Age. That's right. Because they have to issue these certificates because if they don't, they're in trouble. So does that mean the pipeline gets built then? Well, it's already construction's already kind of started in yeah. some sections. Very low key. Even though yeah. there's a federal election, we haven't seen uh, a massive uh, you know uh, you know protest or people chaining yeah. themselves to anything. So I think it I think it gets built. But the big one, as you said, Smitty, is that First Nations. That's challenge. the big one, and that could change the game. It could force the pipeline to be you know redrawn in some way to accommodate certain concerns, and uh, and that one is still coming back. So I wonder how much this is all cost taxpayers. I mean, the, the First Nations challenge I think is a serious one. But this other stuff, this political posturing and saber rattling back and forth across the, the Rocky Mountains between BC and Alberta, I mean, to me, I just, I, I shudder to think how much this has cost taxpayers. Millions, it's got to be millions probably in lawyers' fees. You'd think we could get that number, but every time you ask, they, they tell you it's very complicated because, yeah. you know, the, the lawyers the are already account. working and we're paying their salary. And but Billable hours, man. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of billable hours going <laughs> on there. And for, you know... It, 
by the way, this whole turn off the taps thing, I don't think that Jason Kenny was ever going to turn off the taps. There, I don't think there was any realistic plan to ever do it. It was just kind of a red meat kind of political gesture to his base. And by the way, uh, Rachel Notley, it was her NDP government that originally brought the, the bill in, right? She brought in the turn off the taps and didn't even proclaim it into law. Kenny said, I will proclaim it into law. And and they loved it. His base loved that. He was like, yeah, make them freeze in the dark because they're trying to block our pipeline. But I don't think either one of them, Notley or Kenny, had any realistic intention ever of ever turning off the taps on BC. I think it was just an empty kind of gesture. And it just, you know, it, it ends up in court where everyone knew it would end up. And it ends up with the court ruling we know is is coming. You can't do it. And it's just going to cost taxpayers a lot of money. This is a waste. It's very similar to British Columbia, where I don't same th- thing. I don't think uh, Premier John Horgan. Uh, I think during the campaign, it was a great line to oppose uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Then, but you come into government and instantly realize you can't do it. Pure there's politics. A, there's a long period of months where you pretend you can when everyone's telling you you can't. Right. And it's the taxpayers who pay the legal yeah. bill for that political promise to be tested in 27 different courts of law for the next 10 years. And they all know it. Yeah. That's uh, they just do it anyway. Speaking of politics, so this is the third week now that we have discussed the forestry sector crisis going on in British Columbia. The first week we said, where in the sweet heck is the NDP government while all these mills are closing? More than 3,000 people have either lost their jobs or lost shift work. These are new Democrat voters, mainly uh, union members from the steelworkers. Um, you know, rural communities across BC. Horgan's people. He loves these Org- worker, the hard working hat, people. Uh, yeah. And so that was week one. Week two, the government announces a bailout package, $69 million, going to bridge retirements, help communities. We go, hey, it's, you know, probably a little too late, but at least, at least it's something. Week three, we discover very quietly that the government failed to mention entirely in any of its briefing materials and any of its press conferences that that $69 million is not all new money. And in fact, in order to get to the forestry bailout fund, the government is taking $25 million from another fund for rural communities, and it's going to claw that money back and shutter that rural dividend, it's called, and then it's going to use that money as part of the forestry aid package. And this caught rural communities by surprise because they got letters from the forestry minister, Doug Donaldson, which basically said, Hey, we uh, we got your applications for this rural dividend fund. Thanks for sending them to us. By the way, the program's closed. <laughs> we, we need the money. Nice. Uh, we really appreciate the big stack of binders and everything you sent us about your local project. But uh, we're not. We're going to hold on to those. Maybe we can use them one Maybe year later. in the future. And I think so. Th- there's a, several different ways into this, but the first one that really kind of galls me is that a government that can announce a bailout package. Yeah can't be up front where it's getting the money. Because I wasn't in the press release, oh, right? Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. And and I don't know why they did that, because it's such a short-term game. You when, know they're going to get caught. When you're putting letters out to the mayors within a couple of days, why yeah. don't you just own it up front and say, yeah. here's where the money's coming from? But instead, it, it tells me something about the current state of the new Democrat government, that there are people in this government that, that think that winning a two-day news cycle of a couple stories about how great the forestry aid package is by essentially lying. It's a lie of omission to not tell the public that they're killing one program to fund another. So by lying, you get two days of good news coverage, and then you have to own up to it to the end. But guess what? They've got almost a week of bad coverage for lying about it. I guess they do they figure that they're going to get hammered by hook or by crook anyway. So if they're up front with it, off the bat, like if they say at the news conference, here's a bailout package, and by the way, 
we're sloshing money around and shutting down this other program to fund it. They're going to take a hit on day one. So they figure, well, we might as well try to hide it and maybe it won't come out. You know, like maybe the media won't sniff onto it. But I, I think it was kind of a fool's errand because a lot of these pro these these programs are, are in place in like liberal ridings and there's small town mayors and councils that are applying for this money. They're going to immediately gripe to the local liberal, likely a liberal MLA, and the liberals will go bananas over it. So I don't think there was any hope they could they could ever keep this hidden. No, no. And you know, look, these are these are grants for communities with fewer than I think twenty five thousand people for small rural towns where they use it for uh, tourism development, um, childcare spaces, water treatment, all sorts of different things. Right. It's a, it, communities, and especially including local First Nations, where that is a a key source of revenue when you have a hard time with so few people drawing up a lot of tax revenue. But as you just pointed out, Smitty, they're in mainly liberal ridings. And I wonder yeah. if this – there's two ways to look at this. One is the government doesn't have a lot of money, and we can talk about that in a second. Maybe they just don't have the cash to do this and they're willing to take it in the face uh, and with the criticism because they don't have the money. Or B, they don't particularly see too much of a political downside in, they're not going to win those seats. In anyway. hurting ridings that are represented by liberals that they're never going to win anyways, and there's yeah. a cal- cold political calculation made in some backroom office by some Machiavellian political <laughs> strategist who who's like, who cares? We're not going to win these ridings anyways. So we're talking twenty five million bucks here, right? Which is a lot of money to you and me, but in the bigger scale yeah, of things, fifty billion dollar provincial budget. Right. I mean, so it's kind of nickel and dime, really, relatively speaking. Is this an indication, Rob? Do you think that? 25 million, the budget is so precariously balanced that even 25 million bucks they're worried about. Well, remember a couple podcasts ago, we talked about the economic update and the provincial surplus uh, for this year has shrunk by more than $90 million. So we're now down to $179 million projected surplus on a $50 billion budget. Oh my God, that's like a razor's edge. And that number was only achievable because Finance Minister Carol James took $300 million out of the contingency fund and slid it into the budget so that the budget stayed balanced. And I guess one of the things that this rural dividend fund points out is that there is very quietly a basically spending lockdown on this government that they don't yeah. talk about. But if they can't find $25 million and they have to take it from another fund, it's because they're very worried that this is a very difficult budget to keep balanced. And if it slides into deficit, you know... Even just marginally even, over into the red, it gives the Liberals a talking point, doesn't it? Yeah, which is kind of ironic because we're in the middle of a federal election campaign where nobody cares what the deficit is at all. But provincially, right. <laughs> that's always been the BC NDP's Achilles heels, this idea they can't manage the economy, which we have seen in the first two years, they've managed the economy perfectly fine. Their budgets are prudent. Nobody, they haven't done anything massively crazy, but they they still fear that criticism from the liberals. So maybe the takeaway from this is, man, that budget's tight and they can't even find 20. They're looking for pennies in the couch cushions (laughs) at this point. And we got to keep an eye on that because that will influence all sorts of things going on right now from contract negotiations with teachers all the way through. Maybe other cuts. Maybe maybe cuts, maybe yeah. spending freezes. You yeah. know, those those can have an impact on government. So that's an interesting one. I, I still just, as a journalist, you know, I, I find it, I always find it galling when governments, and it's not just the NDP, the liberals used to do this too, when they yeah. hide, they, they, hide they know and they hide something from you in order to get a very short-term win. And it tells you something about all the, the for lack of a better word, kind of ethics of a government that yeah. when they do stuff like that. And, and that was surprising to see the, 
the NDP do this on this one, but that's what they did. So um, got caught. Yeah. Another one, uh, Smitty, I know you're digging around on this, so kind of walk us through this issue. Uh, teen vaping. This has been going on for quite some time, but it's really picked up a lot of steam in the last, I'd say, month or so across North America with some pretty high-profile medical cases of people, especially young teens, ending up with this lung failure and serious medical distress due to yeah. what doctors are saying is due to vaping. We've been talking a little bit about it in BC, but what, where are we at on that, do you think? Well, this one hits home for me personally because I got two teenage boys at home, both in high school, and I know their friends are vaping. Because I've asked them about it, because I've said to them, I've sat them both down, I go, don't be doing this vaping, all right? You guys are not vaping, are you? Oh, no, Dad, we're not vaping. I'm good, and I believe them. I don't think they're doing it. But I know their friends are, because they've told me, and I've seen their friends sucking on these stupid vaping things. And, and I, when I walk by their high school, which is close to my house, I see these gangs of kids and just billowing vapor clouds coming out. And I just think to myself, what are you guys doing? You know, we were making such great progress on smoking, like mm -hmm. smoking rates have really declined. And now it just seems like we're raising an, a whole new generation of people getting hooked on nicotine again, because there are, there's nicotine in the juice that people's that people inhale out of these vaporizers and the juice is kind of flavored right well this is this is the thing right now 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 we've getting we're getting the health concerns about vaping and we've seen in the united states when there's been an extraordinary number of cases of uh lung disease and stuff reported hundreds and and and, and uh, some deaths as well actual fatalities linked to vaping we've had a confirmed case of uh of lung uh, lung ailments in Canada as well from vaping. So suddenly this has now emerged as a very high-profile issue. Now here's where it gets political because you got liberal MLA Todd Stone saying, pointing out that he had a, a private member's bill in the last session of the legislature, which of course went nowhere, as most private members' bills do, to ban the flavored juice. Because when you buy the juice for these vapes, they come in all kinds of you can buy tutti frutti, watermelon, every imaginable flavor, right? Can you can you buy cigarette flavored juice, or is that not no? no. <laughs> like good old fashioned That's nicotine Mar Marlboro flavored? flavored juices? I don't know. Probably maybe you can. I don't know, but you can certainly buy these tutti frutti flavored juices, right? Now remember, they used to have menthol cigarettes, and when you took a drag on a menthol cigarette, it was like smoking ice cream, you know, and. They banned that. You can't get menthol cigarettes anymore. You can't get wine-dipped um, Colt cigars anymore. Like, they crack down on flavors in tobacco, but you can still get flavored vapes. And it's still nicotine. Right. So what Todd Stone is saying is, let's ban these flavored juices in British Columbia. He's also got, a, uh, in the same bill, he's got much tighter restrictions on the sale of vaping products in BC. So his bill would restrict the sale to dedicated uh, shops, so like a vaping shop or a tobacco, like a cigar store, or he said potentially also a pharmacy. So you would not be able to buy them in a corner store or a gas station, for example, right? And he's also got tough new penalties for non-compliance. So I think it's an interesting bill and an interesting issue right now that I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, emerge in the next session of the legislature, which is coming up soon this fall. We did hear uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix kind of respond the last yeah. week or so saying government's putting together some type of plan on this. The problem with private members' bills for uh, people who 
who don't watch the legislature channel daily, uh, you know, would thank God. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have to. But basically, you know, private members' bills are written by people who aren't ministers. They don't have the support of all the ministry staff. They don't have, in some cases, the legal language to do it. And so it's very difficult to pass those into law because they're, they're basically written on the equivalent of a legislative napkin. Yeah. Um, and, and they can have unintended consequences, loopholes. So it really requires the government to put its resources behind something and craft the law in the right way. And maybe that's what we'll see Adrian Dix do this fall is take Todd Stone's bill and get it, you know, put through the right kind of channels and come up with an actual law on it. Because it makes a lot of sense. Why are, Why don't we ban? I noticed that Michigan is the first U.S. state yes. to ban the sale of uh, flavored e-cigarette products right. and juices. Right. It's possible there's some federal health Canada component to it. But B.C. should at least try to do It'd be this. nice to see some nonpartisan uh, or sort of bipartisan cooperation on it, too, you know. And it's always like, as a parent, I'm, I'm concerned about this issue. And when I read Todd Stone's bill, I thought, you know, this, this, there's some good ideas in here. And, but it's, it's, it's interesting that it's, it's always got to be partisan every time. Like, you know, yeah. as soon as uh, Todd Stone put out a news release about this this week, you had Dick's turn around and say, well, what did the liberals do for 16 years? They could have done something on this and they chose not to do something, do anything. And now we're trying to do something about it. And it's like, you know, facepalm kind of stuff because it's like, really? I mean, we're talking about kids' health and people and kids getting hooked on nicotine. It's always got to be a partisan fight. And the same for uh, Todd Stone because, yeah. you know, he turned around and sort of makes it like, oh, this this NDP government's doing nothing on this while kids are getting hooked and maybe even getting sick and dying. So it, I, I would love to see some two parties come together and say, we're going to try and solve this issue that's of, of critical concern to parents. I think a lot of parents out there. But it won't happen. You know, I think the, I think you'll probably continue to see partisan fighting over it. We're supposed to have a standing committee on health here at the legislature yeah. that, you know, considering health is 40 percent of the provincial budget every year, you'd think MLAs would get together and sit and come up yeah. with, you know, uh, cross-party strategies on health. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope it does. And this is a fall session coming up in a couple of weeks where... I don't think the legislative agenda is super packed. Um, there's going to be some legislation on UNDRIP, the United Nations uh, Declaration of Rights yeah. of Indigenous Peoples. That's going to be enshrined into the law. There's a few other things kind of floating around it, but I think NDP could squeeze it in there if it wanted. I think it might. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting topic because it also crosses over into the Union of BC Municipalities meeting, which is basically all the local mayors and regional governments that are in Vancouver this week. Uh, for their annual week where they pass resolutions and talk amongst themselves about stuff. Vaping and teen vaping is on uh, that. Uh, it's one of the resolutions calling for the BC government to take action on type some type of ban. But UBCM submitted the annual kind of like we call it speed dating, where the ministers all meet with all these different communities, you know, dozens and dozens of <laughs> meetings. And each one lasts like 10 minutes and yeah. you get to try to make your case. And then... Uh, well, it's kind of funny. I saw a tweet from uh, Transportation Minister Claire Trevena saying, it's it's great to meet with all local mayors and councillors. I've had 40 meetings. And the Liberals turned around and said, only 40 couldn't you do 60? We did 60 meetings, you know. And then she came back and said she did almost 80. Oh, so, did she? Oh, yeah. she did 80. Yeah. Okay. So it's like one All of those. Right. It's, I mean, you know, <laughs> the number of meetings is, is it, it used to be inconsequential. Because remember in the Gordon Campbell days, he would use UBCM to make some gigantic gigantic oh, announcement yes. oh yeah like the tsunami wave would sweep over the convention floor and that's all anyone would be talking about this you know dump truck full of cash would appear and poof uh isn't and, that where he, isn't that where he announced the cancellation of the tolls in the coca highway was that ubcm 
I think so, yeah. yeah. He used to announce big infrastructure Whoa, projects. That was there. huge. Christy Clark announced the uh, George Massey uh, Bridge oh, yeah. uh, tunnel replacement there, yeah. which uh, some municipalities didn't like. Yeah. Uh, she didn't like making big announcements at UBCM, and so we're waiting to see what John Horgan announces, if yeah. anything, there. And in, in the absence of that, you get a lot of debate over resolutions and policies and stuff. There's a couple that are interesting. They fit into a narrative you and I have talked about on previous podcasts where local politicians are kind of steamed at the provincial government perpetually, but uh, right now in particular, on lack of consultation on land use issues. Yeah. Uh, Maple Ridge in particular has a resolution saying uh, the BC government shouldn't uh, override municipalities on issues because they're still ticked off at uh, being forced to take a modular housing project oh, yeah. by the BC government in a location they didn't want. And you do get pick up a theme in some of these resolutions of uh, there's another one by community saying, stop changing the Agricultural Land Commission rules until you talk to us. Because those are all shifting on how farmland can be used, and you see examples of people having to close their farm businesses and stuff. So that's a theme we've talked about in past podcasts that seems to be coming up now, a little bit of a frustration from municipalities. Well, that Maple Ridge one's really interesting to me because that's a seat that the NDP picked up from the Liberals in the last election. And it was one of those seats where you'd think the Liberals were likely favored. Uh, to retain that seat. And it was one where the New Democrats picked it up instead in Metro Vancouver. And those are those crucial kind of swing ridings where an entire election kind of tilts on who's going to form government, on who wins these super close seats. So that Maple Ridge fight over that modular housing project, which the provincial government basically as you said, put in over the wishes of the local government has been a super red hot issue. And I wrote a column about it a few weeks ago, uh, just pointing out how, how crucial this may sound like a little sort of local fight in a small, in a small municipality. But in fact, it's got much bigger implications to the province because if the NDP lose that seat, it, it's very damaging to them. I thought Horgan handled it very poorly a few months ago, back in the spring, when it, the fight first started, and he refused to meet the local mayor there, a guy named Mike Morden, who is mad as hell over this modular housing project that the province forced on them. Horgan's meeting with him at the UBCM. Mm. So the UBCM, I think the UBCM is a, is, a, is a really good for this kind of thing, because it kind of forces premiers and cabinet ministers to do these face-to-face sit-downs with these local governments that they might not get, otherwise get an opportunity to do. This is a guy Horgan did not want to meet back in the spring and he and he and he outright refused to meet with the guy which i thought was a bad decision now he's basically kind of forced to meet with him this week it's another reminder though to go back to our forestry topic of how how much these local politicians can pound their provincial counterparts during these meetings because all yeah. the rural mayor mayors who are mad about losing their dividend fund get to have meetings with cabinet ministers and just unleash on them including with the premier so it is a uh, an annual time of year when the local politicians get the ear of the premier and the cabinet ministers, but it doesn't result in usually any massive changes. It's not a some of those resolutions kind of sort of die and and they don't they don't pick up steam. Some of them do. There's there's a couple others on the agenda. One is um, the plastic bag ban, which I think is. Uh, uh, you know, basically coming out of Victoria, there was a little bit of a, an issue with the plastic bag ban that the city of Victoria brought in that was uh, uh, struck down by the courts because the provincial government hadn't given some sort of quasi-official rubber stamp to it. So that's a provincial issue. There's a consultation going on right now on whether BC should have a province-wide ban on single-use plastic bags. Uh, so you go to your grocery store and you got to get a paper bag for five cents or whatever instead. Um, and, uh, what else have they got on there? They have the safe drug supply for the opioid crisis. Some of this stuff will go somewhere. Some of it won't. Um, but, uh, it is a kind of that kind of year where 
the time of year where uh, local politicians get a voice, which makes it uh, which makes it a bit interesting. What's going on with the public inquiry into money laundering? Oh yes, the public inquiry into money laundering. They they announced uh, who the parties that have got standing at this thing, right? Yeah. So. Th- this thing is kind of moving along at its own um, pace. You know, it's supposed to be done, I think, by 2021, May of 2021, this public inquiry. So basically what got announced uh, uh, recently is the groups that are going to have standing uh, to participate in this inquiry. And there's 16 different groups, organizations, uh, government agencies, people who are going to get to uh, be recognized. And that means they're allowed officially to participate in the opening and kind of closing statements. They can quiz witnesses who are up on the stand. Um, They can uh, put forward evidence and that type of thing. So it's a a group that there's no big surprises in it. You know, the BC Lottery Corporation, Great Canadian Gaming, the Government Union, the BCGEU, the law societies, notaries, they're all there, and as uh, to pick up another theme of what we've been talking about, they all have lawyers. Oh, yeah. oh man! And now they're traveling around BC to do some sort of preliminary public hearings. Yeah, and stuff. It's like oh that. man, they're, they, they're going to meet their reporting deadlines on this. This is supposed to be a tightly well they, tightly they, framed. They're thing. talking about hearings by the fall of 2020, maybe even the spring. So kind of the midpoint of next year. So I guess wow. they go out and do these consultations. But what it basically means is anyone who thinks <clears throat> that they're going to be mentioned in this report or based on Attorney General David Eby's many years of commenting about money laundering, maybe they feel like they're going to get blamed or be part of someone who's going to be blamed. They're going to try and get into this report with their lawyers and get into the commission and have their sides uh, you know, explained. There's four people who want to participate that are going to need to have hearings by the commission to be seen if they're allowed to participate and there are probably more there too. So everyone and their cat and their lawyer is going to be at this thing. And, and, you know, I, I haven't covered um, the previous inquiries that closely Smitty, but I can imagine that in some of them, you know, the room is just full of people and and their legal uh, counsels waiting to participate. Well, it kind of clogs the whole thing up. There were a couple of names that jumped out at me this week when I read the list of names that have got this so-called standing at this inquiry and they're, Two guys who were have so far not been granted standing at this thing. They will certainly be witnesses who testify at this public inquiry, but whether they will have standing and be allowed to sort of challenge and question witnesses is another thing. And the two names that jumped out at me is a guy, a guy named one is a guy named Ross Alderson, who is the former head of money laundering operations, anti-money laundering for the BC Lottery Corporation. And this guy is a whistleblower who knows a lot of stuff. He's done some media interviews. I interviewed him a few months ago. And this is the guy, when I when the, when Horgan announced the public inquiry, I contacted him. I said, what's your, what's your reaction? He said, bring it on. I've got a lot of stuff I want to say. And this is a guy who wrote internal reports at the BC Lottery Corporation, basically sounding the alarm on money laundering, and organized crime figures coming into casinos with the the famous hockey bags full of money that we've seen on these surveillance videos and saying he's got a story to tell about who knew what in government, in police, at the Lottery Corporation, and what was done or not done to clean it up. So this is a guy, I'll tell you, when he testifies, he's going to have some interesting stuff to say. Another guy who was seeking standing at this thing, and they're still thinking about whether he'll have standing, but he certainly will testify, I imagine, is a guy named Fred Pinnock, 
who is the former head of the Integrated Illegal Gambling Enforcement Team, which is that one that was shut down by the liberals, remember? And he was the head of it. And this is a guy, again, like the liberals, the day he testifies is going to be a bad day for the liberals because this is a guy who's who's going to stand up and he said in media interviews already that all this money laundering was going on under the nose of government, under the nose of the police, and nothing was done or not enough was done. So these are two two men who are seeking official standing at the inquiry, which can give them um, the I believe it's the ability to question witnesses and stuff. And, and they can they can uh, table their own evidence. Yeah, yeah. So if they get that standing, I don't think that's a very good thing for the liberals because these guys could potentially be very destructive against the liberals. But even if they don't get standing, they will certainly be bombshell testimony oh, yeah. from these guys. I mean, every every day of this thing is going to be bad news for the liberals. There's no, there's kind of no way. Isn't that what it's all it's partially designed to do? Partially designed and, and to land just before the next provincial right election. election. Amazing. Amazing coincidence. I wonder if, you know, what, do you think people will testify, like former politicians will testify or current politicians, like a guy like Rich Coleman, for example? Oh, I, I would I would imagine that, that the NDP would love to see that. It'll be a question for the commissioner. These things... Yeah. It's an independent commission. It, it is, yeah. And I mean, these things get behind schedule. Yeah. They get over budget. They quickly get clogged down. So yeah. if they're going to do that, they might want to try to pull that rabbit out of the hat at the beginning before the train is way, way, way down the track. And I mean, there is a very tight deadline on here. The NDP government has no interest in this report landing after the 2021 election. You might as well not even do it at that point. You know, so there's a tight deadline on here. If the commissioner thinks he's going to get extra time from May 2021, he is sadly mistaken. The political winds are only pushing in one direction there. So it'll depend on how much he's able to get done in the time that he's got, the money he's got, and whether he wants to go... I mean, I can only imagine trying to get a sitting uh, MLA into this commission is going to cause all sorts of legal challenges and cabinet, cabinet documents. Cabinet privilege. Oh, we'll be into the constitutional challenges and the lawyers. Speaking of those lawyers, they're going to be loving it again. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, but it's going to be something to see. We will increase our billable hours next week when we yeah, come okay. when we come back for an, for another podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe. Apple uh, Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher. Follow us both on Twitter. Read uh, Mike in the province and myself in the Vancouver Sun. And uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we will uh, catch up with you with all the latest political news next week. See you then.